so tonight what we're going to be doing, as you can see, the, the idea is lost control. And, and the, the problem that we have so many times in society is it feels like everything is out of control. Uh, there's things going on all around us. I mean, with the coronavirus thing, it's such an interesting thing that's going on. It's like this incredible amount of media hype. And my personality type is someone that believes that everything that the media gets on board with is just a government conspiracy. Like some of you get that and some of you are very tired of that person on like talking to you going, it doesn't matter, never happened, all that kind of stuff. Like, and people are like, really? So it's a government conspiracy? I'm like, yeah. They're like, and China's government too? I'm like, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> but it was one of those things like, I, I'm not somebody that's, I, I'm going, oh, it's, you know, it's hyped, it's all that, but it's something that matters. And I was explained to today I, by a friend, she's like, yeah, we're not going on vacation. I'm like, really? Why? It's not going to affect you guys. You guys are all out of that, that, that zone where it can affect you. And they're like, yeah, but down the street, we have two different people that have cancer and are going through um, all these treatments. And uh, the other way, we have someone who has their grandmother that's living with them that's in the last you know, years of her life. And she said, if it hits our neighborhood, those people are more than likely going to get it and those people will be the ones affected by it. I went, okay, so that's, that's a big deal. That matters. And then you have the political climate that we're in right now. It doesn't matter what side you're on. You hate the other side probably. And it's just everything is going crazy. And then on top of that, it's your own life. Um, it seems like we go through all kinds of cycles where everything seems to be okay. But then I don't know why, why everything hits the fan at the same time. Like it, it always seems to happen that way. It's like either it's going great or it's going awful. But it's just like these times in our lives, everything seems out of control. And tonight I want to talk about a guy who went through that. If you've been around me very often, I love talking about Daniel. He, he is a guy in the Bible that absolutely lost control of his life. Uh, people in, around him were the ones making decisions. The people around him were the ones forcing him into situations. And on top of that, his entire world that he was living in was out of control. And many times, here's what happens. We look at the book of Daniel, and if you've been in church for a while, or if you haven't, you've probably heard of two stories. There's Daniel in the lion's den, and then there's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who go into the fiery furnace, and they come out. And so what we learn many times when we're growing up is this idea. If you really love God, if you really follow after God, then if you're thrown into a lion's den, then God will save you. Here's the problem. How many people do we know of in history that that's happened to? One. You know, how many people do we know that were thrown into a fiery furnace and an angel showed up or what people think was Jesus showed up and kept them from being burned up? Well, three. And so the idea behind the story of Daniel is not be a good little kid and do exactly what your parents tell you to do and God will take care of you. The story of Daniel is actually much more than that. The story of Daniel is about a guy who lost control of everything, but in that moment he decided to do things the way that God did wanted him to, and not only did he survive in that time, but he thrived and made an incredible impact for God. Here's what's crazy. He went into a place of absolute evil, absolute evil, and led three national revivals as a person who was not even accepted in that culture. So here's what we're going to do today. It's going to be a little bit different at the beginning. I'm going to go through a whole bunch of scripture, the first chapter of Daniel, and then we're going to get into the meat of the message. So I just want you guys to stay with me, but I want to give you the background of everything that's going on here. So in Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2, that's where we start. It says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It says, the Lord gave him victory. I want you to remember that. The Lord gave that's the important part of this verse. It says, give him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him, God permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So King, so Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in a treasure house of his God. 
I think a lot of times we look at the situation of the Israelites and we go, wait a second, why would God allow his chosen people to be taken over? See, back in the Old Testament, it was a little bit different. The covenant between God and man was this. It was, you do what I've asked you to do, and I promise to take care of you. Now, with Jesus, it's grace. We have that. But back then, it was, do these things. I promise to take care of you. The problem was the Israelites broke their side of the deal. And it wasn't like it was one day or one week. They broke their side of the deal for 400 years. Like they, they, God was doing what he was supposed to. Everything got good. And I think it's the same thing that happens in our life. When everything gets good, we start to turn our focus from God. And they actually started to worship other gods, gods of money, gods of sex, gods of other things for 400 years. And God goes, all right, it's fine. You're going to do this. I'm not going to protect you anymore. And then it says in there, it says, then God allowed them to take the sacred objects there. Guys, this is a big deal because when you look through the Bible, the sacred objects were important. In fact, God, God had this big idea of what should happen, though, he goes, we should keep these safe. In fact, every time they would go in and conquer a place, the first bit of what they took in it was supposed to go to the temple. And if they didn't do that, God said, I'm not going to bless you. One time they went into the city of Jericho, the first bit they gave to God, and the rest of it they took themselves. But what they didn't know is there was a guy named Achan who decided he saw some gold pieces and put it under his tent. And so the next battle they went into, they lost. And it was like a simple battle. People lost their lives. Why? Because Achan decided not to do what God called him to do. And another side of things, you see um, the idea of this. Here's what's crazy. If you were a priest, the way that you connected was God, you were going to go into this place called the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And you were to go in there. You're supposed to be fully cleansed as, as a soul, as a heart before you walked in. And the, the way that they made sure that you didn't, Basically, if you didn't walk in the right way, you could die. So this is kind of a, like a crazy thing. It's like, okay, today you're going to go meet God. Um, we believe you did everything right, but just in case, we're going to wrap a rope around your waist. And so if you die, we can pull you out. That would be a little bit freaky for me. Like, we'd be like, wait, nah, never mind. I don't need to see God today. It's all right. Jeff can go. Like, I, I, don't, I, I don't need to do that. But here's the deal. Like, this is a big deal. Only those that were absolute pure of heart could even be in that place. So for God to allow them to go in there and take that, it's an important thing to see. And one important thing to understand is that God allowed it, not that they just took it. So we go on in verse 3 and 4. It says this. It says, Then the king ordered Ash, Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Here's what's interesting. This is Daniel writing this book. So basically he's telling everybody who he is. Like he decides to put in there. And so uh, they decided to select all the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. By the way, that's me. <laughs> and he said, make sure, this is also him. He's like, make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted in knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal pal palace. Basically saying, I'm good-looking and I'm smart. Uh, train these young men the language and literature of Babylon. See, this is a big deal. All of a sudden, they're taken from their place. They're set up as slaves in the kingdom's, in the king's house, basically, to serve him of a guy that just took over everything. They killed a bunch of people. They had to learn the language of the Chaldeans, which was hard because they didn't have, like, Google Translate back then or, like, Duolingo or anything like that. Like, they just had to learn it. And on top of it, what they had to study was what they would call the astrology and the occult. They spent three years studying these things. And you're like, what is the occult? Basically, the occult is this. It's learning how to serve Satan. They spent three years learning how to serve Satan. So for those of you in here that are like, I can't do another two years of school. Daniel spent three years learning how to serve Satan. 
They're ripped from their houses, and this is what happens. Daniel, in five, verses 5 through 7, it gets worse. It says, The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. So what are they doing right here? They're trying to crush their spirits. The way that you were known before, we're changing it. You are now slaves to us. It says, Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. Now, for those of you that are new to church and all that kind of stuff, and you're like, man, if I go to a small group tonight and they ask me to read that verse, I don't know what to do. Here's the deal. Here's the best tip. Just act like you know it. Just say the names. If you ever come across any names that are tough, just say it like you know it. And people that have been Christians for 30 years will go, I guess I've been saying it wrong all along. (laughs) Unless it's Jesus. Like, if you mess that, I don't know what you would say there. But here's what happens. Daniel's name was changed to Belshazzar. here's, Here's what's crazy about that. Daniel means God is my judge. Not only God can judge. That's not a tattoo. Um, He says God is my judge. Belshazzar means Baal's prince. Or basically in today's terms, Satan's prince. He goes from God is my judge. It's almost like the idea of being named Christian, like my wife is, to being named Satan's prince, which I would never change my wife's name to that. She would probably kill me. But that's the idea. It's like you are named after God and they change it all the way to Satan's prince. They're trying to crush Daniel's will to be different. In verse 8, it goes on. It says, But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, verse 9 is interesting. It says, Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. What do we see? God allows the Israelites to be taken, but at the same time, he gives Daniel the ability, he gives him the respect and affection of the people in this place. It says, But he responded, I'm afraid, my lord, the king, who has offered you to eat this food and wine, if you become pale and thin compared to the other youths of that age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. This is kind of the idea of where they're at, okay? This guy's a Babylonian, but if he messes up, it's not like, hey, you're demoted, or hey, we're going to move you somewhere else, like we're going to move you to HR. Like, that's not that. It's like you lose your head. You lose your head. It said, but Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This please tested for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. That does not mean the most godly diet is vegan. All the vegans settle down here. All right. Some of you are like, I got to write that down. That's not what that means. Here's what was going on. All the food that was being served to them, one, it wasn't on the diet, basically the, the Jewish diet of the time, but it also was this. All that food had been sacrificed to other gods. And so they weren't supposed to eat food that was sacrificed to other gods. Apparently vegetables weren't good enough to be sacrificed to other gods. So um, it says, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished. It actually says they looked fatter, which you know God had to be a part of to eat vegetables for 10 days and somehow become fatter. That would be awful if that happened. It said, Daniel and his three friends looked healthy and better nursed than the young men who had been eating the food assigned to the king. So after that, the attendant fed only vegetables instead of the food and wine that provided by others. See, what's happening here, they are changing everything, but all of a sudden, God comes in in this moment. He goes, I'm going to give you favor with these people. 
And what Daniel does is he doesn't decide to go after them. He doesn't, go, he doesn't decide to demand what he wants. What does he do? He asks nicely. He gives respect there. And what we see, we see how ruthless this place is. But this guy gives in. Why? Because he believes in what Daniel is saying. Now to finish up, it says this. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. What does this mean? God gave them the ability to understand the occult better than those that are worshiping it, which is an interesting idea. It says, and God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period was was ordered by the king, was completed. The chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. He talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained loyal. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Here's why that's important. King Cyrus wasn't a Babylonian. Basically, the Babylonians got taken over. Daniel was so incredible at his job that the next set of people that took over went, we just got to keep him where he's at. You, You see somebody in this incredible place, and somehow God allows them to graduate at the top of their class. They were valedictorians that were 10 times smarter than all the valedictorians that have gone before them. And this is not in a place that is worshiping God. This is not in a place that is holy. In fact, when you look in the Bible, when Bible, when the Bible talks about the most evil place on earth, it talks about Babylon. When it says that, when it says when Jesus comes back and he defeats evil, the angels will say, fallen and fallen is Babylon. It is the most evil place they could think of. Not Sodom and Gomorrah, not Nazi Germany. It is Babylon. What was their curriculum? What was their culture? Imagine the kind of culture that grew up in an idea like your entire curriculum was Satanism. Imagine if you grew up in a culture where the bottom line of some of what you did was child sacrifice. What would that culture look like? What would the bloodshed that would happen there? And on top of it, Daniel had a horrible setup. Like I need you to understand, Daniel was kidnapped, he was enslaved, his name was changed, and he was castrated. You're like, wait a second, they didn't say that there. I know. Here's the deal. Daniel's working in the king's palace. What does the king have a lot of at that time? Wives. It's called a harem. What don't you want around all these wives? The most handsome, good-looking guys from other countries that you just defeated. So what do you do? You castrate them. So what happened to Daniel? Against his will, his ability to have kids was taken away. Against his will, his ability to have an heir was taken away. This was huge in Israelite culture. Having a son meant that your name lived on, but not only that, it meant you had a retirement. Without a son, it meant that you were going to die in a way away from other people and not have enough money to live. So Daniel was enslaved. He was taken away from all these things, and he was given basically his entire future, it looked like, incredibly bleak. So how did Daniel, in the midst of an absolute loss of control, lead a country into three revivals into following after God? How can we understand what Daniel did and understand when our life is out of control, how we should respond? And here's the first thing we have to do. We have to remember our name. See, here's what we see in this. Every time the Babylonians were referring to them, they used those names. But every time Daniel talked about themselves, he used their real names. See, what were they trying to do? They were trying to take away their name. They were trying to take away who they were. They are trying to take away who God told them they were. Guys, when life is out of control, the first thing that happens is you forget who God said you were. When your life is going crazy, the first thing you do is you think God's not where he should be, therefore you are not who he said you were. 
when life is out of control, the first thing we need to remember is remind ourselves who God said we were. Remember who our name is, or who our name is to God, that we are children of God, and he still has a place for us there. See, that's what Daniel did. The first thing he goes, I, I will be known as Daniel, which is only God. God judges me, not Satan's prince. The second thing he did was this, is he kept hope alive. Now, here's the deal about hope. Here's what hope isn't, and this is what we, we tend to have it as. It's not, I hope, I hope, I hope. It's not, I really hope this happens. I really hope God comes through. I really hope this is what can happen. It's this. Biblical hope is this. I know, I know, I know. I know who God is. I know what he can do. I know if God's in control, what is possible? See, when we look at Daniel, he knew God was in control, right? He saw that Nebuchadnezzar took the Israelites from there. He said, what happened? God gave it to him. He saw Nebuchadnezzar take the things from the temple. He goes, what? God took it from them. Now, while it was not things that were good, he still understood that God was in control. He still understood that God was going to have the final say in what was going on. When life is out of control, we tend to lose hope. And let me just say this as Christians, that is the last thing we can lose. I'm not saying we can't have down days. I'm not saying we can't be tired of what's going on in our lives. I'm saying we don't sit there. I'm saying we don't sit in that despair and that fear. See, panic and despair are not from God. Panic and despair are what the devil does to take your eyes off of God. And so when we lose control, we need to understand this. Daniel wasn't thrilled about where he was, but he knew that God was in control. Because when we have hope, people go, I wonder what they have. When we're constantly pessimistic, when we're constantly talking about everything that's wrong, nobody wants to know what we have. Nobody wants to get near us. See, Daniel could have constantly complained. He could have been like, I had all these things taken away from me. Why would I want to be in a place of hope? Because he realized who God was. Whenever I ask people, I go, hey, we, let's go through a book of the Bible. What do you want to talk about? There's 66 books in the Bible. Everyone talk, wants to talk about the same book, Revelation. People love to talk about Revelation because it's weird. If you've ever gone and read it, you're sitting here, you're like, what? Like, it's confusing. You know what's going on. In certain parts, it's scary. I once had a leader um, get a, decide one night we were on a trip. He decided to allow his sixth grade boys to read a couple chapters of Revelation. And because of that, they all slept in the same room in the same bed together that night. He's actually in this room, but I won't call him out. But um, why? Because it's scary. You look at it, people are like, what, what's going on? Here, here's the truth. It's written in a way we're not supposed to know. And, and it says in the Bible, if you decide to translate it in the wrong way, if you try to decide to tell people this is what's going on, that's not what's happening, there's a curse that follows along with it. So what, when it happens to Revelation, the middle part, where it's talking about the dragon and all this stuff and all that, I'm like, I think this is what it means. But here's what I know. In the end, it's very clear. God wins. And then it's very clear, good wins. And then it's very clear, the, the holiness of God wins and evil loses. See, as Christians, what we know is this, is in the end, God wins. In the end of everything he wants to do, whether it's at the end of our life or in our life right now, he will win at it. In fact, there's a verse in the Bible that I've always taken the wrong way, and I don't know why, but it's in Matthew 16, 18. And this is Jesus talking about the church. And he says, I tell you, Pete, tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't know why, but I think every time I, I've heard about, you know, fighting the other side, fighting the enemy, I've always had the idea of being in defensive posture, right? 
It's like you're resisting the devil. You're resisting what he's doing. But the problem with this verse is even though I saw it, here's the problem. It's not saying that we're resisting the devil right here. It's not like the devil's coming against us and they're like, hey, we're gonna go fight them. Somebody pick up the gates and let's hit them with them. Like that's not what it is, right? Because gates are defensive structures. Here's what this verse says. Here's what Jesus is saying. He goes, if the church decides to do something that I am behind, the gates of hell will not keep it away. If the church decides to do what I have called them to do, nothing can stop them. That doesn't mean it's gonna be perfect. Doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. Doesn't mean you won't have trouble along the way, but it knows this. It knows that we will win. It's kind of like this. I, the Super Bowl, in, I think it was 2009. I, I'm a big Steelers fan. And the Steelers actually, they had the most Super Bowls as the Patriots, most uh, as six, but we actually didn't cheat to get them, so it was pretty good. Um, <laughs> So they're playing against the Cardinals in that Super Bowl. And I, uh, it's actually kind of funny. I, I get a little bit too much into football and, and sports and watching them on TV. I've gotten a lot better. Like I've, I've gone through a little bit of recovery. Um, it's called having kids. And they're like, why is daddy so angry? Uh, so I remember, it was funny. I was talking to somebody the other day. They're like, yeah, I remember. Didn't we watch that Super Bowl with you? I'm like, no, no. I wasn't there, trust me. You would remember that. And I remember watching this game, and it did not go well for the Steelers most of the game. Um, that, was, that was Kurt Warner's last year. He was lighting us up. Like, it wasn't going well. And actually, towards the end of the game, we were down. And it, it, it just did not look like it was a possibility. I remember when you're down, what's going on? I mean, they're showing the Cardinals sideline the entire time. And they're, like, hyped up, and they're jumping up and down. I'm like, shut up. Like, you know, yeah. and they're, like, showing the fans with, like, the big Cardinal on their chest. I'm like, Cardinal's such a stupid mascot. Why do you have a Cardinal on your chest? Like, what is it going to do? Peck your eyes out? Like, and I'm just sitting there. I'm getting angry. And then what happens? Ben Roethlisberger, our quarterback, starts moving us down the field, moving us down the field, moving us down the field. We get to, the, like, the last, I think, 30 seconds that were left. And I'm just sitting there on the edge of my seat. And like Roethlisberger goes out to the side and he starts running to the side. I'm going, oh, he's not going to do it. And he throws the ball. And I think he's just throwing it away. But somehow Santonio Holmes, like it was the most amazing catch ever, like got two feet down, reached out of bounds, grabbed it, and we got a touchdown. It was like incredible. I'm like going nuts. I'm like a better, the officials better not mess this up for me. Like this entire time I'm like, Jesus, where are you? He makes the catch. I'm like, God is on his throne again. Like everything's Okay. Which, yes, I know as a pastor, God could care less about football, but in that moment, I wanted him to. So, but it was crazy. And then the last 30 seconds go off, they don't get down there. It's perfectly fine. We win the Super Bowl. Well, my dad, I don't remember what has happened, but basically, uh, he hadn't seen the entire game, so we go and we watch it again. I'm not one of those people who just watches the old games over and over again to relive the glory days. Steelers win enough Super Bowls. I don't have to, you know, do that. Um, but I remember watching the game. And here's what's different. When you know the outcome, how different is the game? Like I'm watching it. Like things are happening. I'm like, eh, oh well. Like I, I see it gets, starts getting towards the end. And what happens? You see the Cardinal sideline going crazy. I'm like, just wait. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> right? Like everybody's going crazy. I'm just, and it gets to that point where Roethlisberger throws the pass. And I'm not thinking he's throwing out of bounds. I'm like, this is going to be amazing. And he catches the ball and everything's fine. See, but why, but why, why am I calm in that moment? Because I know what the ending is. See, as Christians, we get to have the same thing. We get to have that ability. When we have the bigger picture, we get to understand. We know the ending. We know what God's going to do. Yes, it may seem like something that is distant in our life, but we know in the end it is God that wins. See, if we know who Jesus is, we can have the optimism and the hope that he is going to work out whatever situation we're in right now. 
whether it is in this life or in the next one where everything will be perfect. So we've got to hold on to that optimism. Now, the next thing that he, that he does sounds different. It doesn't sound, you're like, well, if my life is out of control, I have to pay attention to this. But it's so important, it's this, it's remain humble. Remain humble. And when we look at humility, our ultimate showing of humility was Jesus on the cross. We also see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And when I say humble, here's what I'm going after specifically. It's respect to everyone. When life is out of control, we tend to lose respect. We tend to go after everyone. If we think somebody is against us, we go off on them. If we think somebody is blocking our way, we tend to retaliate to them. What did we see Daniel do? He respected everyone. Did these people kidnap him and bring him there? Yes, they did. Did they do things to him that were absolutely awful? Yes, they did. But he continued to have respect. When he asked for the vegetables, did he demand it? He goes, this is my dietary guidelines. He said, no. Hey, if it pleases you, please test us in this. See, here's what's crazy. Daniel even got close to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and if, I'm, if I'm Daniel and I'm close to this king, probably my entire thought life is I'm going to wait till he trusts me, then I may take him out. But Daniel was able to get so close to Nebuchadnezzar that he actually changed Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And when it came time to tell Nebuchadnezzar, because what happened was this, is Nebuchadnezzar had some dreams and Daniel told him what they meant, but it, the last dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was of his own death. He just didn't know it. If I'm Daniel and I understand this dream and I'm going in to tell Nebuchadnezzar, this is what your dream means. The man that brought me here, the man that enslaved me, the man that castrated me, the man that made me learn about Satanism this entire time. I'm not walking in saying what Daniel did. Because here's what Daniel says. He says, Oh, king, I wish it was anyone but you. Because Daniel cared more about the person. See, if I'm in Daniel's position, I'm walking in, I'm going, hey, guys, um, if you're not going to die in the next couple months, raise your hand. Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> put it down. <laughs> I'll be honest, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing that nicely. See, here's what's interesting is Daniel is just like Jesus, and Jesus is not about wiping out his enemies. He's about winning them over. Jesus is not about getting rid of all the people that disagree with him. He's about bringing him over to their side. It's called grace, and grace is not just for us. It's also for the people in our lives that we believe are opposing us. See, I don't know what it is about being a Christian, but many times we go against those people, and sometimes we feel like we're supposed to be a pit bull for Jesus. Like we're supposed to, and if anybody says anything bad about Jesus or anything comes out in the media about this or that, we feel like we have this need to defend Jesus, like poor little Jesus. And I think part of that is the pictures that we have of Jesus. He looks like he needs to be defended. But where in the Bible do you see that? Where, why do we believe we need to defend the man that could do miracles? Why do we even feel the need that we need to defend all these things? Here's what's interesting. And let me just say this. He spent three years learning the cult. I think Christians need to be okay learning things that disagree with us. I think we need to be comfortable with that. I think we need to be okay with those kinds of things happening and being able to get to the other side. Here's what's crazy. In 2 Timothy, it talks about how we're supposed to treat those that oppose us. It says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone, be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. This is an awful verse. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth and be patient, uh, gently oppose, uh, instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. 
Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Get this first. He's saying people are not evil. They're being held by evil. So why did Daniel choose to respect those around him and show humility in that? Because even though his life was falling apart, he understood that the real enemy was not the person in front of him. The real enemy was the devil. And the best thing he could do was help free them from that. I mean, what's crazy is you see Nebuchadnezzar actually being won over by Daniel, having the ability to tell that entire kingdom about God. Here's a question I've got for you. And you raise your hand. How many of you in here have someone that you don't know why, or maybe you know why, um, doesn't like you or just doesn't respect you? It should be everybody. Here's my question. When you have somebody in your life that doesn't like you and definitely doesn't respect you, when was the last time you actually listened to their advice? See, guys, as Christians, when we show others that we don't like them or we don't respect them, when we decide to tell them about the God that we love, why would they listen? I still remember being absolutely called on this, not for the first time, not the last time, but I was playing basketball at, I was at UF and we were playing in an intramural league. I was playing for a uh, church, not a church team, a church orga uh, Christian organization. And we go into the game and I did what I normally do. I talked large amounts of trash. <laughs> large amounts. Because here's the deal. I understood who I was. Um, I'm not going to jump really high. I'm not going to play incredible defense because I'm not that fast. But I can bring into question what your mom does as a side business. Not that that's right, but that's what I did. I talked trash. I went after it. I remember ending the game, and we beat the other team, and I thought it was great and awesome that we won an intramural game. It's funny how caught up I get in that. But I remember one of the guys taking me aside. He goes, yeah, we won. That's great. He goes, I got a question for you. If you started talking to one of these guys afterwards and wanted to invite them to church, do you think they'd go? I didn't ha that was like one of the few times I was like, I, I don't have anything to say right now. <laughs> but think about it. The way that you treat those in your office, the way that you treat those that are around you. I mean, I can't imagine, I can't tell you the amount of times I felt the need to almost yell at someone or flick them off in traffic, and then they pulled into church behind me. It's like, I need to take that gray sticker off the back. <laughs> But here's what's interesting. God, God says, hey, even in your toughest times, we continue to remain humble. What does that mean? We continue to respect those around us. Why? Because our job as Christians is not to tell everybody else what's wrong with them. Our job as Christians is to show what it means to love and care for someone and give them grace. Because if you want to be right, you go on rants. If you want influence, you respect I don't remember what I said. It was something I just made up. <laughs> Here's the last thing that David did. He made wise, wise choices. He made wise choices. When everything's going crazy, that's the last thing we tend to do. We tend not to think through things. And here's what David did the most that I want you to catch on to. In the midst of everything that was going wrong and everything he could fight for, here's what he did. He picked his battles. 
He picked the people he should talk to. He picked the things that he should go after. And here's what I want you to understand real quick. And I I think as Christians, we get this wrong sometimes. There's a big difference between what we don't like and what God forbids. There's a big difference between what we don't like happening around us and what God says can't happen. Let me just stay on top of that. It is wrong of us as Christians to assume those around us who are not Christians to act like it. So what he does, what does he do? He makes wise choices. When God said you can't eat that, he didn't say, hey, my God says I can't eat that. He says, hey, can you please do this? He picked the battle. He did what he decided to do. Did he study the occult? Absolutely. Did he practice it? No, he didn't. Did he learn about a society in an incredible way so that he could speak to it later? Yes, he did. Did he do what everybody else called him to do? No, he didn't. See, he's making wise choices in this. I doubt at any moment in this time he was thrilled that he was a slave. Doubt at any moment in this time he was thrilled that this king had ransacked, his kingdom had taken away from his God. But I believe this, guys. I believe the times of our greatest influence and the time where people look at us the most are the times where our lives are out of control are the times where things are falling apart and they want to know what's happening and how we react. I still remember going through Hurricane Andrew. Um, It happened down in South Florida. I don't remember the year, but it was probably before some of you were born. And I I think I was like nine or 10 years old. And we were down in South Florida. Hurricane Andrew was one of the deadliest hurricanes that happened. It absolutely ripped apart. homestead and different areas down there, like absolutely leveled entire, um, entire areas of houses. Like it was crazy. And I remember we, what we did was we were about to switch churches. My dad was changing what church we were at as a pastor. And he, he lived down in Hollywood, Florida, which was South. And he stayed at the house because that's where the eye was supposed to go through. And my dad's one of those guys like me. He's like, I don't believe in hurricanes. If I don't believe in it, it doesn't happen. And so he actually went out in the eye of the hurricane and threw a Frisbee because... We do dumb things. And we went up north and we stayed at one of the pastor's houses. And one of the pastor's houses up north, he, uh, he had basically boarded up everything. If you've ever been inside a boarded up house, it's dark. And you start here, and when the hurricane came through late at night, and you started to hear, you know, the wind, you started to hear it banging against the windows, you started to hear all those things. And we decided, hey, um, maybe we should just try to go to sleep, which is kind of crazy. I remember my mom got out this flashlight and she turned it on. And it was incredibly dim. You know when you got a flashlight, the battery's about to run out? Like it's just insanely dim. And she turned it on. I'm like, ah, that's probably not going to last long. I remember my mom was on one side of the living room. I was on the other side. And she kind of just left it on. I think she did it just to help me know that like she was there. It was just, it was literally just bright enough to where I could slightly see that she was there. And I remember many times during the night as the wind came through, as stuff rattled, all that, I would wake up and look over. And while the light wasn't bright, I could see my mom. I could see she was there. I could see that safety was there. See, it wasn't a bright light, but the fact that it could show me where safety was made all the difference. The fact that it could show me where to go when life got tough, when everything went crazy, if I needed to, I could find her. See, in the darkest of places, even the dimmest of lights can make all the difference. In the darkest of moments that you experience in your life, even the dimmest of lights can make a difference. Guys, so many times we get caught up in how bright our light is as Christians, how much influence, what we do. I want you to understand something. It's not about how bright your light is, it's whether or not it stays on, okay? 
It's not about whether or not you're on stage or in front of people or whatever it may be. When it comes to God's calling for your life, what he wants to do in your purpose, it's not about how bright it is. It's whether or not it stays on through the hard times. Because here's what God says. He goes, your job is not to do everything in this. Your job is not to be incredibly bright beyond what I've even gifted you to. Your job is to be a dim enough light, a bright enough light to show them the way to me. To show them the way to safety. To show them the way to what is changing. And the only way that happens is when we stay plugged into the source. The only way that happens is when we stay close to him. How do we do that? We do the same thing Daniel did. We remember who God says we are. We keep that humility. We make wise choices. And we do what God's called us to do. Some of you are saying, like, when you're talking about being out of control, I don't want to know what I'm supposed to do in order to influence other people. No, that's exactly what we need to know. Because the same thing that brings control to our lives is the same thing that brings people to God. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you that you are a God that loves us so much that you want to bring us towards you every time life gets hard. God, I pray for many in this room who feel like their life is crazy, that is out of control in this moment. God, I pray that they would, you would remind them of you. God, I pray that they'd move towards you. God, I know that these upcoming weeks with everything that is going on, the world and in our own lives, God, I pray that we would stay focused on you. I pray that we'd stay focused on you in a way that we remember who you say we are. And God, I pray that when we look at others around us, we never see anyone as an enemy, just as someone who has not got to see you yet. God, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us in that. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.